Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, June 3rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi is the only state not to apply for disaster mitigation funding under a new federal program. Then, summer resources designed to boost Mississippi's literacy rate kick into high gear. And writer Ben Beard examines how the South is portrayed in film. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. FEMA's new natural disaster mitigation initiative is called Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities, or BRIC for short. It's designed to incentivize local governments to invest in infrastructure that can withstand floods, storms, and earthquakes. In fiscal year 2020, 49 U.S. states applied for over $3.5 billion in federal grants under the program. BRIC seems like a perfect fit for a small, disaster-rich state like Mississippi, yet Mississippi is the only state not to seek BRIC funding this cycle. To better understand the rationale behind that decision, our Rob Lane spoke with Stephen McCraney. He's the executive director of the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. McCraney says disaster mitigation is critically important, but in this instance, BRIC wasn't a good fit for the state. Yeah, the, the BRIC program is a, a transition from PDM, which is the pre-disaster uh, uh, mitigation program. And uh, brand new in 2020, uh, FEMA came out with it. And uh, it's the same program, different name, different uh, mantra, the resiliency, building the communities that can, from a disaster, recover quicker because things are, uh, the structures are there. It's more uh, built uh, harder. And uh, they're able, and we've actually had that uh, from Katrina since we did some mitigation projects down there. We've been able to come back very quickly on the coast from hurricanes and tropical storms. Now, obviously, this program is sort of predicated on these large federal grants. Who are the specific entities who would apply for a grant? Because my understanding is that it doesn't necessarily come from the state level, that the Biden administration is looking for applications from the community level, and I don't entirely understand what that means. Yeah, and and so a lot of what uh, FEMA does is authorize sections of money for the states. Uh, So uh, when we work with Region 4 for Mississippi, it's actually the sub-applicants, which are the the county governments, the cities, 
uh, in communities that, that would apply for, say, a drainage project. That's what they need. They need to divert water where they won't be flooded, uh, et cetera. So it's not necessarily the state's money, and it's not necessarily allocated to us, uh, but we all, the whole country competes for those in, in the BRIC program. Now the whole country competes for those, but in this in this cycle, at least, Mississippi is not going to be competing. Absolutely not. Because of the 50 states in the union, Mississippi is the only state to have not submitted any applications for this funding. That's correct. Why? Well, you've got uh, you, you've got to look at what's what's going on in that program. Okay, there's there's uh, uh, running the numbers this morning. There's 500 million dollars available uh, in the whole United States. The projects that are out there are $3.6 billion. They're not all going to get funded. They're going to run out of money. So uh, Mississippi is disaster rich, so to speak. We have 20 open disasters right now. And every time we have a disaster, a federally declared disaster, there is a percentage of monies that are available to the state in our mitigation program, the pre-disaster mitigation program, which is just like the BRIC. So we have those funds available authorized to us they are in our account waiting on any local entity county or city to apply for we have those funds they wanted to apply we saw it we've got funds that are about to expire i'd have to give back to the federal government we utilize those funds and we funded the projects all of them that were available in the state so there was no other they didn't exceed our capacity so the, the monies we already had in our hand so we actually did that, and we're, we're advertising right now to the rest of the state like we always do. If you got a project, come to us. I have funds that are available. Now, Louisiana experiences a lot of the same kinds of natural disasters that Mississippi does. Obviously, they have a different perspective because they were they applied for, I believe, $120 million. Right. They asked for some of the most money in the country, even going against yeah. you know states like Texas and California exactly. and New York. Yeah. Why does Mississippi see things differently? Why are things different in Mississippi? We had the funds available. And in this instance, the, the BRIC was a brand-new program. Well, it's a brand-new name to an old program. And we had the funds available. So if, if we had exceeded what we already had from the federal government ready to put in those programs, we definitely would have submitted those into a BRIC, uh, the pile, which is going to be woefully low. There's going to be a lot of projects that go unfunded. I say fund what, what, what I have out of what I've already been authorized, and I think that's the way to go. So does that mean that funding for crisis mitigation in Mississippi is not a concern right now? I would say funding for all projects that are needed are uh, an issue because you also have a cost share now. You have 75% of every project is funded by the federal government in that program, but there's a 25% match. So if you've got a $4 million project, you've got to come up with a million. And a small community does not necessarily have that. Uh, th those monies to match and that's a that's a big deterrence uh, Katrina is one of the only storms in which mitigation was 100% fully funded and the state really was able to get healthy off of that we did safe rooms uh, uh, generators for emergency operations centers all over the state and so we we're really able to do a lot for that uh, but now when you go to that 75 25 match that uh, that's a, that's significant for for locals budget so my understanding is that, as FEMA reported it, for those in those cases, the, the small impoverished communities, which is one part of who's being targeted by this right. program, in that case, the federal government would provide 
90% of the cost for any kind of project, right. and the the community would provide the, the non-federal cost share, what they call it, which would be 10% in that case. Right. So even that 10% would be a prohibitive barrier for a lot of these communities. It is. It okay. is. And, and uh, the, like I said, I'll, I'll go back to Katrina. We really were able to, in our coastal communities and even up from there, the, some of the smaller communities, uh, really able to hit some home runs, uh, being able to, to really mitigate some facilities, make things, harden some bridges, and abutments on the side so they don't wash out every year. We don't have to continue to replace them. So we were able to really get some things done. Uh, the 100% money I don't think will ever come back, uh, and, and that's a, that, that is a travesty uh, for a small state like Mississippi. But, again, Mississippi has 20 open federally declared disasters, and that does give us a pool of funds and monies, and uh, uh, we're able to work with the local communities that, that need and maybe don't have all the match. We're able to, uh, to assist them with some of the match help. Uh, and we can't do that in every case, but uh, we have done a, what I think is a yeoman's work, very, very good work so far. And again, Mississippi, the only state in the union not to apply fundamentally at the end of the day. Is this a difference in resources between Mississippi and the other 49 states, or is it a difference in philosophy? I think it's a, a combination of both. I think if you have a bird in the hand, if you have money that is available for uh, programs, and you use that money, it's already there. There's no decision even been made on who's going to get this money yet. Yeah, this is the 2020 uh, BRIC uh, uh, competition. There's still all states are still waiting to see who's going to get those funds. Well, guess what? The, the the four or five projects in Mississippi that wanted to be funded, we've got it, and we've already funded them. So I, I think there is an opportunity there to say, when we qualify, we're going to use what we have to take care of the people in the state of Mississippi. And uh, I think we've done that. It's a different philosophy than maybe all other states uh, went with. Hey, let's apply for a small piece of the pie, and it's everybody go for it. I have a lot of federally declared disasters. Other states don't. So they, that is a way that they have to apply because they don't have as many disasters as, we, as, as we've had here in the state. Because on the face of it, it's like, well, Mississippi's just not doing their job. I, I think that's totally false. MEMA is doing its job. We're disaster rich. We, we, we have them more than anybody else. So you already have that money dedicated to the state. Use it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go with a program where I wish I had that money. Let's go ahead and supply the funds for all the programs, for all those that were submitted, and we've got that. Now let's work on the future brick, maybe next year. Uh, look at the, uh, the flooding in the city of Jackson. Uh, they have the, uh, the Three Lakes Project and some other things that's just about to come to fruition where they've passed all of their inspections, everything. So I think that's going to be an opportunity in the future that that I really believe is a, is a true brick project. That is really going to take an enormous amount of funding, but it's really going to do a lot of things for upstream, downstream uh, here in the central part of Mississippi. So I, I think the brick program is a good concept. And, and I think that we will be able to use it this year. It just didn't work out that way. I've got the way. We can fund it. And we're not still waiting on a decision from a, a program that might be and, uh, and competing for a very small piece of pie. In terms of the decision to not pursue this funding, did the buck stop with you? Were you the final decision maker on this? Absolutely, I am. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Coming up, summer is an important time to keep Mississippi kids reading. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. When school lets out, most kids lose structured exposure to books and other reading materials. This summer, Save the Children launches 100 Days of Reading, a campaign designed to keep summer reading accessible for kids throughout this country, and especially in rural states like Mississippi. Save the Children's Yolanda Minor tells our Ashley Norwood that childhood literacy efforts are especially important this year. I want to say first that our children have experienced a grave learning loss due to COVID-19, it's equivalent to almost losing a year of learning. Um, Some of the things that were hindrances, I know in the state of Mississippi was the lack of technology. You stated that those in-person programs went virtual, but our children did not have access to to the technology to play an active role in there. And if they did have technology, they did not have access to the internet or a quiet space to sit and learn or a parent that could be there to support their their education. Is there any uh, data on Mississippi, um, you know, even before the pandemic? Because some of what you've mentioned I know is, is is definitely unique to our state as it is a rural state and we definitely have our digital divide. Um, but I guess this is also something that other states, other um, you know, families have been dealing with as well. But when you think about um, you know, just where Mississippi was before the pandemic, are we further behind like even further behind at this point? Yes. I know in Save the Children's 2021 Childhood Report, it found that 47% of Mississippi families say they are spending, that the children are spending less time on learning activities compared to a typical day before COVID. When the pandemic struck, half of all K-12 students in Mississippi lack those tools that I just talked about for remote learning. So talk to me then, um, well, let me ask you this. Uh, actually, I'm just reminded of something. So this this campaign, I did read that it has some emphasis and focus on uh, rural families. Uh, talk about why they are more at risk. Uh, we find that rural families lack the opportunities and the resources needed for them to be successful. Rather, it's that technology, that digital divide, or even food. And now food insecurity was pre-COVID one in four, and now it's one in three. So our babies' bellies are not are, are empty. And how can you learn on an empty stomach? So in rural areas, it just lacks the resources necessary for children to be uh, successful. That's why we have to pour more into these rural communities. All right, Yolanda Miner, Deputy Programs Director with Save the Children Mississippi. Thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. All right, take care. More localized literacy efforts are also playing out within Mississippi communities. That includes the Madison County Library System, where Youth Services Director Zon Zimmerer hopes summertime activities and prizes will incentivize kids to read. There is a thing that we affectionately refer to as summer slide, which happens when, you know, kids are off 
and away from school for eight to 12 weeks, depending on where they are. And during that time, they may not necessarily be reading the way they would be when they're enrolled in school. And one of the things about summer reading is we try to encourage kids to keep reading during the summer and hopefully to keep reading for pleasure, not just you've been assigned these books to read over the summer. No, we want them to actually also read for pleasure. So it's, it's important to us um, to be a part of that conversation with families. And it's important to us to promote all kinds of reading, you know, and to really support the fact that reading for pleasure is just as important as reading for assignments. You know, something you mentioned um, before we had this conversation was about uh, meals and the role that nutrition plays in, you know, the ability, um, you know, to read and learn. Can you talk about that and also what's happening um, at the library system to assist in that? Ah, I love that you asked that. Thank you. (laughs) So kids who are hungry are going to be much less likely to want to read. So in order to combat that, uh, the Madison County Library System, um, starting June 7th and through July 30th, Monday through Friday, youth, so 0 to 18, will be able to go to their branch and get a sack lunch. Um, Each branch has different times, so they will need to call or check online or listen to the radio and find out when those times are. But they'll be able to come and get a sack lunch and a little program that will have a a grab-and-go bag or we'll have a movie or we'll have a story time. It's going to vary by branch. But we know that feeding kids is one of the challenges that parents face during the summer because a lot of kids get free lunch during school year, but they don't get free lunch over the summer. And so for either economic reasons or time reasons or whatever it is, it becomes harder for parents to feed their kids over the summer. So we want to take some of that burden off of them, and we want to feed these kids, we want to feed their bodies as well as their minds and their souls. So we want them to have a lunch and pick out a book to read, you know, and and have some quality time because if they're not hungry, they're much more able to have fun reading. Well, Dawn, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about this and uh, looking forward to talking to you again. Yes, ma'am. Coming up in today's book club, movies set in the South don't always paint the rosiest of pictures, as we discover in the South never plays itself. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
There are countless movies made about the South, from the magnolias and mint juleps to the civil rights movement and the violence that ensued. In The South Never Plays Itself, author Ben Beard explores the history of the Deep South on screen. When I was growing up, I would watch movies set in the South, and it never, like, synced up with the world I was living in. This was, like, the 80s and 90s in uh, northern Florida. And as I started looking through the films, I realized that a lot of the films were made by outsiders with an agenda in mind, filmed in places that aren't the South. And so I was sort of playing on the idea that we're seeing, like, a refracted representation of the South through Hollywood and New York eyes. What films stand out as being about the South or defining the South? Well, that's weirdly a, a tough question. I mean, there's so many. I would, I would say no film set in the South is set there accidentally, except for a few filmed in Atlanta because of the way Atlanta's been going the last 10 years or so. So if a film set in the South, it's there for a reason. And usually it's trying to grapple with racism or hardship. But there are a lot of seminal films in good ways and bad. I'll start with Deliverance. The four guys who go on a canoe trip, they're from like a city somewhere in Georgia, maybe Atlanta, and they run into these rednecks who attack them and there's murder and assault and stuff. A very influential film and a total lie. But obviously the big ones are Gone with the Wind, Driving with Daisy. But to me, there are uh, some hidden films, semi-hidden films that really captured the South that I grew up in, like Junebug, which deals with religious belief on its own terms. There's so many good films set in the South. In a way, it's hard to cherry-pick. Nashville is another sort of seminal movie that deals with the South and America at the same time. I want to ask you about Mississippi specifically. One movie made in Mississippi about Mississippi with Mississippi in the title is Mississippi Burning. It took history and turned it on its ear. It was not historically accurate, and it made FBI the FBI seem like the heroes coming in to stop racism. And Do you write about that in your book? I do, and I would a refrain I have is good film, bad history. Gone with the Wind's another one. Or bad film, but good history, right? Some movies are like medicine. They make you eat something you don't really want to eat. Mississippi Burning is a well-made film. It's exciting, and it's thrilling even. And there's comeuppance for the bad guys, and you have action sequences. But yeah, it's a complete falsehood because it makes the, at best, apathetic bystanders, but more accurately, the villains. It makes them the heroes. And the problem with movies is they're so important in our country, they're really more than fiction. And they get kind of absorbed into the country's bloodstream, and they don't ever go away. I mean, I would bet that millions more people watched Mississippi Burning than ever read a book about the Mississippi Freedom Summer. And so what we're left with is people kind of know that it's fake, but they also kind of trust it and believe it. The movies have immense power, and they've misdirected us. They've lied to us. Sometimes they tell the truth. And in terms of, like, the civil rights movement and race relations, this is really, really damaging and important stuff. Why is it, do you think, that northern or western filmmakers think all southerners are a bunch of local yokels and hillbillies? (laughs) Um, Okay. I think you have, like, A, the accent. 
I think part of it is the popular depictions like Hee Haw and Dukes of Hazard, which was filmed in California. But <laughs> those kinds of popular depictions, especially from the 70s, they entered the bloodstream that the South was like filled with dumb racists that are uneducated, don't read books, and don't know anything. And again, back to Deliverance, right? Or Tobacco Road, which came out in the 40s, which gives you a, a ridiculous view of hard-up farmers. They're basically like rural vampires. So I think the axe is part of it. I think the history is part of it because the South was really poor and poorer than the rest of the country. And we've been battling the Civil War since it ended. We've been fighting it in, in other forms now for 150, 60 years. We can't get past it. So I do. I think all of that's in there. A lot of the great novelists came from the South. A lot of the great, most of the great musicians before you know 1980 came from the South. I don't quite see it in the real world, but yeah, uh, shorthand in a movie. You want to show a character's racist and kind of a minor villain? Give him a Southern accent. Ben Beard is the author of The South Never Plays Itself, a film buff's journey through the South on screen. Ben, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.